This is a Federal News Network podcast. Cybersecurity poses a never-ending challenge to federal information technology people. Now supply chain security has jumped into the pile of concerns. One chief information officer has put cyber defense at the center of her efforts. At the ACT-IAC Executive Leadership Conference earlier this week in Hershey, Pennsylvania, I caught up with Energy Department CIO Ann Duncan. I asked her about whether all those energy labs make up a special supply chain concern. So I think that, uh, yes, it is a special concern, although I'm not sure it's bigger than some of the departments and agencies. We have a lot of supply chain risk management programs in DOE. Um, we do everything from NNSA does destructive testing of products, and some of the labs do some de- destructive testing, to more traditional programs where we look um, at data about suppliers and we look out to the to the nth uh, supplier in that supply chain to understand who we're buying, where it's coming from, what components exist in that software or hardware. And actually our challenge is that we do a lot of it, and we are re- we are often doing the same things across different parts of DOE. So I've been having conversations with the labs and with NNSA and other folks about, hey, let's bring these programs together and not to have anybody take over anybody else's program, but to coordinate and say, oh, we already evaluated this. Here's our information. Let's not have three other parts of the department evaluate it. So we, we have a tremendous amount of resource to bear on that, and we just need to get better coordinated to do, to do more with it. Yeah, short of shared services, at least you can have shared information and shared practices, you might say. Exactly, and, and there's, there's value in having everybody do their own thing because they're looking at slightly different things. But sharing that information back and having a clearinghouse. And I'm a big believer that, that the best place to do something in DOE is the place where the most knowledge is. So I've been trying to convince one of my peers that I don't need to own that, that, that that's something that clearinghouse they can own. So I'm working on someone on that one. But cyber defense, that's really your major focus almost as CIO. It is huge. And, I, you know, it's frustrating to me as someone who is deeply excited about innovation that I spend far more time talking about cybersecurity because it's so important. And DOE has a really unique role in cyber defense because not only do we have lots of stuff to defend, everything from the nuclear stockpile um, all the way to the electrical grid to our, our plants, labs, and sites, but also we do research in cybersecurity and cyber defense. And so my, t- my team's role in that space right now is not only defending DOE's footprint and DOE's assets, but also understanding the research going on in DOE and, and really being a clearinghouse to share that research across DOE. Um, and we have an event that we're putting together in the spring, which is going to be both classified and unclassified, where we're going to bring folks from DOE together, from our researchers, and, and to share their research, but also as an opportunity for those researchers who don't see each other to get together and have conversations. So we're going to probably have a very formal event in the SCIF, and then we'll have a formal event outside the SCIF with some academics and other folks. But then we're going to get people and say, hey, now's your time to do kind of birds of a feather session. I saw something really interesting. I'm going to grab these three people. We're going to go in a room. We're going to have a conversation. So we can not only share, but we can create more value by by getting those folks together to, to learn from each other. You know, it sounds prosaic, but it really seems central to the whole cyber defense issue, and that is the passwordless society, passwordless access for the public accessing systems and for federal employees themselves. Some have CAC cards. That's kind of getting there. Mm-hmm. Is, is that an area that you're looking at or that some of the researchers are looking at somewhere in DOE? I, I'm sure someone in DOE is looking at that because any kind of research that you look for, I mean, things I don't even expect someone is doing, um, certainly uh, it's an area of, of interest for us um, and and 
you know, one of our struggles is, is you not only have identity, but you have systems. And we have, we're, right. we're getting pretty good with identity, but we have systems that can't support the same infrastructure. So we have to look at what, you know, if we can't do password lists, what are our mitigations and what are our, our compensating controls to make sure that it's more safe and secure. But I have no doubt that there is someone somewhere at DOE who's got <laughs> the killer app that they're developing right now. All right. You just have to find it. So, That's right. Which gets us to the question of the aggregator mm-hmm. role that you're developing for DOE. Different places become the locus of learnings. Tell us more about that one. Yeah, so what, one of, we, you know, it, it was sort of a serendipitous thing. We were asked uh, by the White House to deliver a 5G catalog, and we did that, and we realized there was huge value in understanding what DOE knows because no one in DOE knows what DOE knows. And so we pulled that together. We did that for 5G. Then we, the next outcome was a strategy, and then the next come after that was, oh, here are the gaps. Here are the things that we need to fill, and then we go and get people to fill those gaps. And so that's what we're, we're repeating that in the, in the cyber defense space. We're repeating that, as we said, in the supply chain security space. And how do we not take over anybody's mission but pull it together, understand it, and then uh, convey it out to the organization, and in some cases to other folks in the interagency or to international partners, so that people can leverage that capability as well as we can fill the gaps in. It strikes me that's almost a shortcut to the learning agenda goals that the White House put out recently. We may not need to do so much learning. Somebody already knows this stuff somewhere. Exactly. And, you know, it's funny because this is, this is similar to, um, you know, all these knowledge management systems we've been trying to put in place for decades. And they don't work. Right. No one fills in the data. So how do you create that knowledge uh, aggregation? And, you know, we've le- what we're, we're learning here is, it is very much a, a, a one piece of information at a time. It takes a person to go out and get that information from people. But, yes, it, it short circuits that we've got to learn new things by figuring out what we know and pulling that together. At Workforce is another focus. I've heard you speak several times publicly on that, the development of the cyber workforce, mm-hmm. the IT workforce. Tell us your latest thinking. Yeah, there's tremendous attention to the cyber workforce, but, all of our technical workforces are challenging to, to recruit, retain, and so we've got a couple things going on. Num- number one is that uh, we have, we're implementing the cyber retention incentives that have been implemented across a number of parts of the government. We just launched our program um, across DOE, and being DOE, it's, it's each department element decides whether they're going to participate or not. We have some levers at the labs because they're not federal employees at 16 of the 17 labs. So we have a little bit more leverage, but, you know, we're not going to be paying them what Google pays, for example. So one of the exciting projects we have out there is um, our our Omni Internship Program, which is sponsored by a number of parts of DOE. And that Omni Internship Program is designed to give uh, college students a paid internship. We also, because we recognize that if we want to uh, have diverse students, we need a paid internship. Uh, we also have, have sites that are very remote. Right? We have places like Albuquerque and Idaho Falls and, and Tri-Cities, uh, Washington. So what we really need to do is be able to get those students there, make sure they have transportation and housing. Mm-hmm. You've got to get from the Albuquerque airport, you've got to get to Los Alamos, right? That's not trivial if you can't rent a car because you're too young. So we, we, we smooth out all the challenges of actually physically getting to those sites so that those students can have a meaningful 10-week internship. And we, the goal is to have them for three years across three different parts of DOE, and then that they're clearance ready at the end of their three years, and by the time they're ready to come on board, uh, they have a clearance. And so we hope to basically convince them that they want to be public servants, that our mission is exciting, and that they should come work for the government, whether it's in the DOE 
public sector side or on the private sector side of DOE. And, and, you know, we have a tremendous number of leaders in DOE now, senior leaders, who have started as interns. So we know it, it really is a place where people will spend their entire careers. It's a huge enterprise. You can do a lot of things. And so we just need to get them in the door younger so that's a that's sure. a big initiative on our part. Well, the State Department has several channels of internship like that. Check with them. They might have the knowledge you need on smoothing it, like you say. They mm-hmm. also bring in paid collegiate interns. You know, CIOs often at these conferences and elsewhere talk about artificial intelligence, cloud computing, modernizing the infrastructure, all those kinds mm-hmm. of nuts and bolts things. Do you spend a lot of time on those issues? Are those pretty well under control? Anything worth noting going on in those, not prosaic, but... Ongoing. Let's yeah, say. I mean they're they're the table stakes, right? The things that we need to be doing to 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 have to get our jobs done, to have credibility around the rest of the organization. You know, DOE we're doing really basic things in that space. We have we don't have lots of big customer facing or public facing systems, um, so we don't get a lot of visibility from from that standpoint across the government. Um, we, we have a few grant programs, things like that. But most of our, you know, we sell bulk power. We don't sell to individuals. We, we do research grants. We don't, uh, you know, do research for individuals. Um, so we are certainly uh, improving the ability of my office to deliver uh, capabilities. We're trying to um, ensure that across DOE it gets easier to get an ATO, that it gets easier to, um, use uh, our, our paths where we have low-code platforms and, and ATOs in place. And if you use those paths, we're going to try and make it streamlined for people. Um, we're, we're, we're increasing the level of engagement across DOE with modernization programs to try and ensure that those programs are successful. And, you know, obviously continuing to manage our critical infrastructure across DOE. But you know, nothing... Nothing earth-shattering and new in that space. We're just turning the crank to do all the things we should be doing to be successful. And midterms are coming. Will you stick around for the second half of the first term, at least? (laughs) I I don't have any plans to go anywhere right now. Ann Duncan, CIO of the Energy Department. We spoke at the ELC conference earlier this week in Hershey, Pennsylvania. We'll post the interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the podcast version wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. 
and his stories, right? And his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know. In retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of, involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of 
coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in in federal service? And she said, "Uh, isn't that for old people? (laughs) I said, "Uh, (laughs) um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But 
I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So, so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield. And this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.